Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. have another Christmas show for you tonight. As if Wally and his UFOs in the Bible weren't enough from last week, uh, Ryan Peterson is dropping by for about the third time. Uh, he and Barbara have covered his judgment of the Nephilim. Uh, tonight we'll be covering his the final Nephilim, and that's it's a uh, fantastic book. Uh, nothing says Christmas like those elites who bring cor- corruption, but you know we'll also get some inspirational messages uh, to go along with the season. Uh, Ryan is a featured speaker at many Nephilim conferences and has some appearances in the New Year. And we'll talk about those here shortly. And he also hosts the very educational Thursday Night Theology on Facebook. And I highly recommend watching those live streams. Um, you can learn more about all the things he's has going on by visiting his website, judgmentofthenephilim.com. And, you know, there's... You know, on Barbara's website and the YouTube uh, ch- channel, there's you know, all all the information there as well. So, uh, ch- you know, ch- check out all that stuff. Uh, hi, hi, Ryan. How you doing? Mark, I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Oh, I, I'm I'm fine uh, too. Uh, looking forward to the next couple hours of talking about your. Uh, amazing book. I, uh, you know, if 
you know, the audience uh, j- j- just listen and you'll find out how uh r- really well crafted you know, the old and new testaments are you know you may you uh weave all the different stories together and in your book you show how uh, they you know both books are more of a uh, like part one part two you know s- sequel they aren't too independently written books um i think you just did, did a fantastic job uh researching the nephilim from both books and all the prophecies oh thank you thank you so much and praise the lord you know i'm just um very grateful you know it, it i wanted to really um get into that topic of the nephilim and really explore it from a biblical perspective but most importantly i mm-hmm. wanted to really show how really from the earliest parts of the Bible to Revelation, it's really just weaving its way through God's plan of redemption. You know, it's really God's plan to save and redeem humanity and how God weaves his will through all the different human events and through the battle against really the forces of evil, the fallen angels and the devil and ultimate, and the ultimate victory, of course, for our Savior, Jesus Christ. The title of your, your book does not sound... Uh, like a seasonal type show, but what <laughs> you just said you know, really does make it uh, a uh, you know, very relevant to a show right before Christmas. <laughs> but you know, we we will get into that over uh, you know, the course of the evening. But. Um, yeah, I, I first wanted to, um, you know, before, you know, or, you know, we can easily run out of time with, you know, your information. But uh, you do have, uh, you just had a, uh, came back from a conference in Dallas, is that right? And you have a conference in uh, the uh, spring in Orlando. Yeah, that's correct. So, yes, I just came from the uh, the pre-trib uh, study conference hosted by Tommy Ice. That was in Dallas, Texas, and uh, that was a really great time because it was it was you know um, it was I was really blessed to be invited because they've been doing it for 28 years, and I think I was mm-hmm. the second speaker there who's ever even touched the topic of the Nephilim. It's a very uh, more of an academic type conference. It's really for mm-hmm. seminary students and pastors, so I was excited that they were willing to really listen to this topic and engage on the more supernatural aspects of the Bible. And then in terms of future conferences, uh, first off, in January, I'll be in Seguin, Texas, uh, for the Bible Mysteries podcast. They're doing a live episode mini-conference, and that will be January 22nd. Um, right outside of Austin, Texas. And then in March, 2nd to the 5th, I'll be at the Orlando Prophecy Summit, uh, obviously in Orlando, Florida, hosted by Prophecy Watchers. So very excited for those events as well. Cool. Okay. Uh, Great. I uh, just wanted to make sure that 
people knew that you, know, you were going to be out and about in the new year. So, um, you know, to try to remember that. Uh, give, give it a quick plug also uh, towards the end of the show. But um, it, um, I think, you know, just if the listeners haven't had a chance to watch you on your Thursday night theology shows, um, it uh, was just, uh, about a couple weeks ago. You, you did a, you know, a little um, segment on uh, the gap theory, and you know, maybe when Gary Wayne was a guest with us, he, he may have touched on it, but. Uh, yeah, you know, I just wanted to, uh, if you don't mind, uh, you know, just doing a little uh, recap uh, of it, you know, just to get, give a flavor of uh, what you frequently discuss on your Thursday night theology live streams. Sure. Well, the you know the the, the basis of the show is really you know I get a lot of questions from readers from subscribers throughout the week, and so I usually pick two or three questions and really try to like rather than just kind of answer them off the cuff, I, I put in research and research sources, scripture to do kind of a mini presentation based on what people are asking, and they're always great questions. Supernatural gap theory is a great example. I've got lots of questions about that, and really the gap theory is. Uh, the position, the belief that between Genesis 1, verse 1, the first two verses of the Bible, and 1, verse 2, um, that there's actually a gap. That when you see, of course, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and then you get to the, and the earth was formless and void, and we see this formless, void earth covered in water, that there was actually a judgment, that there was a history, an ancient history that predates Adam and Eve, between those two verses, and that's why we find the earth in that kind of basically ruined and judged and damaged state, um, and very similar to what we see in Genesis chapter 8 after the flood, where the earth, of course, is covered with water and has been judged. And so, um, so I explored that, and, and what I like to do is just kind of really kind of bring out the scriptural support for those types of ideas and interpretations. And in that case of the gap theory, what I point to immediately is that when you look at just from the, from the angelic realm perspective the bible verses that reference that history i think we can find the support for it for the gap theory you know for example ezekiel chapter 28 very famous verse that addresses uh the devil and his history before he was uh basically rebelled against god and says it says that you know thou hast been in eden the garden of god you know well when was that and he's wearing you know at least nine stones and jewels that the devil was wearing in the Garden of Eden, nine of those stones are nine of the same stones that Aaron wore in his breastplate as the high priest. So he was in a priestly oh. role. So when did that take place? You know, Job, using the book of Job, Job chapter 38, when God is responding to Job, finally answering him, he says, where was thou when I laid the foundation of the earth? And God goes on to say that at that moment, he says that the morning stars sang and the sons of God, the Benai Elohim, shouted for joy. So we see a reference to angels worshiping God at the creation of the earth. So again, there's a history. I think these verses support the fact that there's a, there clearly is a history involving the angelic realm that predates Adam and Eve. 
and takes place on Earth, and that's where you see the gap being filled in in the gap theory. Well, uh, okay, that's uh, fascinating. I think it, uh, Gary, uh, you know, briefly uh, d- discussed it in something, and you know, he went off into another uh, direction, and. I, I don't think I, I don't think we've had a guest uh, go into the detail that you just did, and I, I think it's uh, like one of those really mind blowing kind of topics. I, I just really enjoy hearing like those mysterious aspects of the Bible plus some of the other things we're going to get into tonight. But, um, yeah, that's just a sample of what you, uh, you know, frequently uh, discuss on Thursday nights and uh, a variety of other topics. So it's uh, worth checking out. and learn learn something different. It's you also mentioned um, like the supernatural aspects of the Bible, and we're going to get into that as well. Uh, but it, it when we look at the Old and New Testaments, it, and it, and you know the way you present it in your the final Nephilim, it it really is a supernatural book. Uh, there's element you, know, you draw our attention to uh, like the genetic engineering that it, you are all, almost making it sound like it's foreshadowing the science fiction writings of today. Absolutely. You know, and a big concept, uh, certainly in the final Nephilim that I talk about is this idea of the scroll of time that God is repeating events. The human history is repeating itself in, in, in different types and shadows. And of course, scripture says this, you know, I, I point to, uh, you know, Isaiah 46, where God himself, in, in speaking to the Israelites, says, says that the way, proclaims that the way that they can know he is God, that God of God, El Elyon, the Most High, is through prophecy. God says that he is God, he is God and only God, declaring the end from the beginning. You know, and the idea of, you know, because Ecclesiastes is where that famous verse in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, that says there's nothing new under the sun. And mm-hmm. that verse also says that the thing that hath been is that which shall be. So the Bible is telling us that this is something we're going to see. And so we look even at Genesis 6 and the incursion by the fallen angels, taking human women as wives, fathering the Nephilim, and essentially endangering human genetics, right? Putting us in a position mm-hmm. where human beings could be disqualified from salvation it's no surprise that we see as we approach the end times, that same spirit, that same, you know, you think of inspiration, that same spirit operating today in the world. When you look at transhumanism, 
the whole idea of CRISPR, genetic manipulation, the, the, the billionaire tech moguls who are spending millions of dollars in life extension technology, literally seeking immortality, whether they merge with AI, put their consciousness into a computer, or manipulate their genetics to become immortal human beings, evolved human beings. This is all a repetition of what we saw in the days of Noah, and also uh, also another foreshadow of what's going to take place in the Great Tribulation itself. You know, for, for, fascinating stuff. And, and, you know, uh, before we uh, jump uh, too, too far into the Nephilim, um, maybe we should start with you know the manger scene, the reason for the season. Um, it is what is it uh, you know, about this? You know the Old Testament prophecies that made this child uh, that was kind of born. On Christmas Day, uh, so so special. You know, d- it, like the wise men seem to know something. You know, uh, what's uh, the story there with you know the, the you know the wise men approaching from the east and the, the gifts that they were bringing? Sure. So you know the you know the the, the prophecy. You know, so much of the Gospels is really about prophecy. You know, it, you know, when you look in the book of John in particular, but also in other books of the Gospel, uh, the Gospels, you see that, that this, this, this phrase, uh, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And mm-hmm. it's stated over and over again. And so what, from the, so this is going all the way back to Genesis 3.15, to the first prophecy of Messiah, but throughout the Old Testament, the expectation of Messiah was really the pivotal thing that every, every biblical prophet was looking to in Scripture. And so when we get to the wise men, it's interesting that, you know, they were, their, their kind of academic heritage was through the prophet Daniel. You know, he was a part of the Magi in, you know, in, during the, the time of Nebuchadnezzar. And what we see, I think, with Daniel is he received several prophecies based on time. You know, whether we look at the, the, the 70 weeks prophecy, which references the entering the timing of Messiah. You know, so, again, you, if you think about those who, and he, of course, was, I, I have no doubt, the most revered since he actually had was endowed with power from God to interpret dreams, to save Nebuchadnezzar, to help him repent and all the things he did, you know, sleeping in the lines and surviving. I believe that that heritage is what led the the Magi to still be following and looking for Messiah and even understanding the timing. And I think God confirms it with the star. Because when you think about the star, you know, it's, it's interesting that the star that we see over Bethlehem, that's, it's not, that's not a normal star. We always see the image of a star in the sky high up and, you know, that manger below. But that star is actually, if you look in Scripture, that star is actually moving. It moves and eventually, ultimately, rests 
over the you know where Mary and Joseph were staying with the infant Jesus. So I think that the, the Magi, from the, the ancient prophecies where Daniel was told the timing of the second temple, the timing of the third temple, the timing of Messiah, um, I believe that's how they were able to discern and know the timing of when the Messiah would appear on earth. Yeah, and and I, yeah, the timing of Jesus' birth and what you just said just a, a minute or so ago about um, an, um, a, another aspect of uh, timing, and yeah, that goes back to uh, – uh, very early in, uh, you know, the uh, basically the opening of Genesis, where uh, the author wrote about um, the the two different seeds. Is it it's like in chapter three? Absolutely, Genesis three fifteen. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, that, that that's one. I, I uh, was glancing at my notes and I could couldn't find uh, where I uh, jotted that down. But yeah, that's uh, that's it. So so you know, can, can you explain? Yeah, the since we've been talking a little bit about time, uh, where this uh, Jesus's presence was known. Very early on in human history. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So Genesis three fifteen, you know, I refer to as the ultimate prophecy, and for that exact reason, because it made Jesus known to the world for the first time. And so, of course, this is going back to the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve have been found in sin, and God is announcing their punishments, but He also announces the punishment of the devil of the serpent. And he says to the serpent he, that, that he's going to, that there will be two seeds. He said, I'll put enmity or conflict or war between thy seed and the seed of a woman. And he prophesied, God prophesied to the devil that he is going to have his head bruised or crushed by the seed of the woman. And this, of course, is what we call in, in theology, the proto-evangelium, the first gospel, the first proclamation of the Messiah, the coming Messiah. And so what I challenge the reader to do in Judgment of the Nephilim, my first book, is to think about these events from the perspective of the angels, not from our, 20, you know, our 2022 perspective where we know about the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem and we, we celebrate every year, but think about it at, in ancient times that the devil, you know, one of the most powerful angelic beings in the heavenly realm was being told that he was going to be defeated by a child, that a, ch- a human child was going to be born who would defeat him one day. And so, one, I think that probably sent shockwaves to the fallen angels, but two, it gave Satan a target. Because from that point on, humanity was his enemy. And we're told that, which is, of course, is confirmed in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, and we're told specifically that the fallen angels are our true enemies. That's who we are wrestling with. And so from that point on, the devil was now determined to either destroy this child, 
prevent his birth or corrupt humanity so that this human savior could no could not be born and could not redeem us. And so that really set the course of biblical history for the next 6,000 years and set the stage for the events of Genesis 6 when we see the incursion of the fallen angels and the birth of the Nephilim. Okay. So, um, yeah, they ha- have their you know, pre and post diluvian uh, appearances on Earth. So, so let's get into you know what you just uh, mentioned about Genesis six and you know, you know the two different stages of the Nephilim you know, before and after the flood. Sure. So, you know, of course we have the, the narrative of Genesis 6, which tells us uh, explicitly that the sons of God, Benaiha Elohim, who were angels, took human women as wives. And uh, it says they bear giants to them. So we see the direct, the marriage, the, the consummation of the marriage, and the birth of the giants. And so they, they of course, were the original, excuse me, the original Nephilim. But then after the flood, we see giants reemerge. You know, as soon as we, you know, even as early as Genesis chapter 14, you know, when uh, Lot is kidnapped and Abraham has to go rescue him, you know, we see there are giants all over the promised land. And how did they get there? So what I explain is that the, this, this uh, kind of illicit relationship between angels and human women never occurred again after Genesis 6. I believe that that never took place again because I believe the, the judgment of those angels was, was so severe it deterred any future fornication. However, I believe that the DNA of the Nephilim made it through on the ark um, through the wives of Noah's sons, and particularly through the wife of his son, Ham. And there's something interesting to point to about Noah when you look at his life, is that when you look at the genealogies in Genesis chapter 10 and 11 that go through the godly patriarchs, most of those men before the flood had their first child by around 50 to 60 years old. And I believe, of course, the lifespans before the flood were much longer. So I, I believe that that uh, humanity actually matured at a slower rate. So marrying age is more around 50 and having children around 60 um, than obviously what we have today after the flood. However, when you get to Noah, Noah did not have his first son until he was 500 years old. So why does that matter? It matters because he got on the flood. I'm sorry, he got on the ark at age 600. So by the time he had his first son, he got it already determined that he was going to flood the world, instructed him to build the ark, and gave humanity a 120-year probation to repent of all the wickedness that was taking place with the infiltration and proliferation of the Nephilim before he was going to judge the earth. So, and the testimony of Scripture in Genesis 6 is that all flesh had corrupted itself before God. So humanity itself was, was almost entirely genetically corrupted. So by the time Noah had kids and they were old enough to marry and have their own children, the odds of finding a woman with no trace of Nephilim DNA was slim to none. Then thrown the fact that Ham, we find out chapters later, wasn't a righteous son. 
and uh, wouldn't have cared about the prophecy of the Messiah and all those things anyway. And I believe what we see is that that's how, through the wives, that's how uh, the DNA passed through. And I also show in Judgment of the Nephilim that when you look at the post-Diluvian giants, they can all be traced back to Canaan, the grandson of Noah and the son of Ham. Okay. And... We can kind of start there and, and look at all these other – it's almost like uh, shape-shifting characters, uh, but there is a continuous line of the Nephilim – that you band upon you know, th- throughout your uh, book with uh, you know, Nimrod, you know, it's pretty uh, recognizable, recognizable biblical name. Uh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, Pharaoh, the Assyrian, you know, Goliath. Uh, you know, you, you, there, there's a whole list of them where. They are all gravitating towards, like, being in politics or, like, being uh, some kind of authority figure, king, uh, uh, whatever the power structure was. It's uh, really a fascinating uh, topic: How you uh, link all these people? Uh, maybe it's just the same person, you know, reincarnation or so- something like that, where it's just the same same person uh, trying to ruin the, the world and find Jesus throughout um, the Old and New Testaments. Yeah, absolutely. And so in, in, in my second book, in, in the final Nephilim, I really focus on uh, the other seed, right, of Genesis 3.15, mm-hmm. who I believe is the Antichrist. And I have a chapter called The Return of the Antichrist where I explain that I believe there will be a spirit, an angelic spirit that will indwell the Antichrist who has been on earth uh, really seven times before, um, before the Great Tribulation and throughout biblical history and that and what I point to is uh, Revelation chapter 17, where John, of course, the apostle John wrote Revelation, sees this vision of the seven-headed beast. And the angel who's accompanying him says, I will explain to you what the seven heads are. And he, and he gives this very mysterious, complex prophecy, but I think that reveals that the Antichrist has actually been on earth before. And it says that there's, the seven heads are seven kings. And says five are fallen, one is, and one is yet to come, and will continue a short space. And this is, and, and then the eighth is of the seven is the beast that was and is not is meaning the antichrist is the eighth and is of the seven and goeth into perdition. And so, like I said, while it may sound confusing, I think it's actually giving us a chronology of a being who God has permitted 
to emerge on earth throughout biblical history. And again, Revelation, I believe, was written in 96 AD, and the angel's telling John that five are fallen, that meaning that five of the kings that this being has emerged or possessed and indwelled that were dead at the time of the writing of Revelation. What he then says one is the sixth is alive at the time of 96 AD, and one is to come in the future. So it's telling him a specific time-oriented prophecy, and then says that the eighth, the final beast, the actual Antichrist, he is of the seven. So again, it's the same being reemerging through time, and I believe that this, this is this fallen angelic spirit. Uh, has indwelled leaders, and you mentioned Nimrod, who I believe was one of them, the, the first, actually, of the seven, what I call mystery kings throughout history. And uh, and the end times emerges uh, from the abyss, as when we see the abyss opened at the fifth trumpet, and he's called Apollyon or Abaddon, the, the angel and the, the king of the bottomless pit. So I believe that spirit, is has, has, which will incarnate and indwell the Antichrist, has actually been on earth throughout history, as you said, that God has permitted this being at times, and really always at times to kind of bring judgment upon the earth or bring judgment upon Israel, um, ultimately uh, manifesting in the Antichrist. Yeah, and you uh, devote a lot of the final Nephilim to the Assyrian, uh, I remember you know, covering him uh, in an Old Testament class I had in college. I, you know, I just kind of forgot about him. But uh, you, know, you uh, uh, spent a lot of time uh, developing who he was and you know it's like you know during my memory oh okay you know this is one of those one of the more darker characters uh so could you explain a little bit about this uh uh character the assyrian sure the assyrian in the old testament that is the most common Old Testament title for the Antichrist. And when you see the prophecies of the Assyrian, um, we're really getting a, a preview into the career, the reign uh, of the Antichrist in the end times. And what I really point to in, in the final Nephilim is, is, is uh, four chapters in particular, although there are many chapters, there are many prophecies of the Assyrian. I really focus on four um, the uh, Isaiah's, Isaiah chapters 10 to 14. And so, and there, you know, basically you see it outline the rise and fall. And again, if you look at just from the beginning, the terminology, uh, Isaiah 10 calls the Assyrian, God says the Assyrian is the rod of mine anger. He says, I will send them against the hypocritical nation, against the people of my wrath. I will give them a charge to take spoil and pray and tread down the, like the mire of the streets, and says that, um, howbeit he meaneth not so, neither does his heart think so. So God is making it clear that he's going to use the Antichrist ultimately as a rod in his hand. He's a tool. Why? To bring Israel 
back to calling out to him, to reconciliation. And, be, and really, that's what the battle, the purpose of the Antichrist really is. The Antichrist, what I explained is that one of the key prophetic events uh, before the second coming of Christ is the end times reconciliation of Israel. That that has to take place for Christ's return. Christ told the nation of Israel at his first coming, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who cometh in the name of the Lord. And so that reconciliation is inextricably linked to the second coming of Christ. And the Antichrist is the devil's means to prevent that from happening, right? Christ is already born. The Messiah is here. The seed of the woman has been born, but now it's preventing him coming back a second time. And that's what the Antichrist is trying to do. So, but what he doesn't know, and this is the, this is the beauty of the Bible, the verse says he doesn't, he, he doesn't realize that in the end, for all his power and might, the Antichrist is just God's tool. So he's not a threat. And as it continues in Isaiah 10, it says, it even says things that, you know, speaking, you know, in the voice of the Assyrian, it says, he's, for he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I am prudent. And I have removed the bounds of the people. This is in Isaiah 10, 12 to 14. So it's saying he's removing all boundaries, global government. I've robbed their treasures. I've gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved the wing or opened the mouth or peeped. So in other words, there's no movement. In other words, it's saying that not only has he gathered all the earth under his authority, you can't make a move without his authorization. And when you look in Revelation chapter 13 and see the, the reign of the Antichrist, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the mark of the beast, a total economic control. Nothing can be bought or sold without it. And then you look at the image of the beast that the Antichrist sets up in the temple um, to be worshipped. Something very interesting about the image of the beast is that it says that the image, in addition to being given life, it says that it knows and monitors who is worshiping. You, you are required, there's mandatory worship of the image for every person on earth under penalty of death. And the image knows who is worshiping and who is not. So again, the reign of Antichrist is a total control society and global government. And Isaiah 10 again outlines all of this. And it continues to, to, to describe that the, the Assyrian will ultimately deceive Israel but then they'll turn back. And it even says that, that it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel, the believing one-third remnant, and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob, shall no more again stay upon him that smote them, but shall stay upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God. So this, again, this is talking, this is end times prophecy. And it's saying, for a time, they're going to be deceived by him, but eventually they'll return to God, cry out to him. Of course, then God will come and conquer the Assyrian. Hmm. Okay, that sounds like it's right out of uh, 1984. Yeah, and you just mentioned the... Uh, one third of the uh, Jewish population that that still has a uh, faith in God. Uh, yeah, you can see in Revelation where you get the image of 
uh, the dragon's tail sweeping a, a third of the stars uh, you know, onto uh, Earth. So you know, there's a, another use of the one-third in the uh, Old and New Testaments to d- discuss population sizes. Absolutely. And again, it goes back to this idea of the scroll of time, right? We see that mm-hmm. one-third of the angels rebel with Satan, and in the end, mm-hmm. Israel is a one-third of Israel. This is, of course, prophesied in the book of Zechariah. One-third will be the believing remnant that return and, be- and return and believe in Christ in the Great Tribulation. So I think symbolically, again, it's going to the fact that we are replacing those fallen angels. That they that, that remnant is going to be symbolically replacing the one third uh, of the fallen that, of course, are going to be judged. And even when you look and say Revelation chapter eight at the trumpet judgments, you see, you know, a, a third of the rivers turn to blood, a third of the sun is smoke is smitten. Uh, you know, this 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 rep- this repetition of a third, a third, a third, and I believe mm-hmm. that's God. You know judging the heavenly the fallen angelic grumbling addition to the earth right and so so yes yeah, so i think there's a lot of again this idea of what i call quantum repetition through these numbers expressed all throughout the book of revelation yeah, and yeah, since we're kind of like on that uh math section um you gus uh, Goliath and how how his uh, uh, de- depiction is w- with uh, a repetition of sixes, and then you know we will get you know the six 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 in the the Book of Revelation as well. Uh, could you explain a, a little bit about that? And you know, you know, I think we're doing a nice little section here on uh, the unity of both books. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you see that uh, you know in the description, of course, Goliath, and I talk about how even even. You know, kind of the, obviously the famous battle of David and Goliath, how that is in itself foreshadow of Armageddon. You know, that, mm-hmm. yeah, David, of course, who is the ancestor of the Messiah, told by God, uh, of course, that the Messiah would come through him, through his lineage. And, he, and you think in Scripture, of course, Jesus is called the son of David. And in some prophecies, he's even referred to as David. And then you have Goliath, of course, who is a Nephilim. He's a giant. He's of the seed of the serpent. He's of this fallen angelic seed. He's a hybrid. And they're battling for the fate of Israel. Goliath says, if I beat you, all of the nation becomes my slaves. So we're seeing, again, a foreshadow of the Antichrist agenda. And, um, and then to your point, when we look at the description of Goliath, we see uh, a foreshadow, again, of the Antichrist. Of course, we see that in that he, he, first of all, he's described as being six cubits and a span, his height. So, of course, he had supernatural height. And then when you look at his, the description of his armor, you know, he's carrying a weapon uh, that, that is 60 talents, and then he wears six 
pieces of armor. So you see this, this, this numeric foreshadowing of 666, which, of course, we know from Numbers 13 is the number of the beast, the number of the Antichrist, who is the final Nephilim. Yeah, and you also have uh, the, the the 777 companies, or, or not, is a contrast to uh, you know the 666. So uh, what does that number uh, represent and? Yeah, because you know that uh, fits fits into the Old Testament as well. The seven days of creation and other yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Of course, yeah. The seven you have the seven days of creation, even on the ark, right? The, the clean animals, you know, you had animals grown by pairs and by sevens. You know, you have. Mm-hmm. Oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. another one. So, yeah. So you see, you know, this idea, this concept, uh, and it's really of God's number, I believe, of completion. You know, God says in seven days he made the earth. And, you know, so it's, it's a full cycle of completion, of renewal. And, of course, we see when God finally acts out to bring the earth back and bring back heaven and win everything permanently for his, his saints, we see the 777 in the judgments, see seven seals, seven trumpets, seven vials uh, uh, of judgment. So um, that bring us to what? to the consummation of all things, to the end of sin, right? Everything is, sin comes to an end, Satan is punished, death is ended after we get through these seven sevens. And so, um, so yeah, so it's really kind of God's counter to the 666 kingdom of the Antichrist. And when we look at um, yeah, the 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 pharaoh and you know that uh the magic show between Moses and Aaron and uh you know, the pharaohs uh um oh, uh, oh what are their names uh Janner uh Janus and Jabres yeah his yeah, uh, yeah, his, uh, yeah. his magicians the sorcerers yeah yeah it, um thank you for I, I butchered their names but uh or, or one of the names but but um it, it's yeah that's a really interesting uh scene in itself uh but when we get uh you know reading uh, Exodus, and we come across the you know, different um, plagues. Uh, you know, it's, uh, pretty freaky. Uh, all like all of a sudden the frogs are all over the place, and uh, you know the uh, moon uh, was the moon disappears. Uh, but we ha- have the, the same imagery in. The Book of Revelation, as well. Uh, what what's that e- Egyptian type connection go, uh, going on between those two books? Sure. Well, you know, when you see, I mean, I think that you know when I 
talked about that, you know, the, there are, I, I believe there are four key events in the earliest parts of Scripture that really help us interpret Revelation. And, you know, I point to, we've talked about almost all of them, Genesis 3.15, the ultimate prophecy, we talked about the days of Noah, the days of Lot, but also the fourth is the Exodus. And the Exodus is really, when we get into this idea of, you know, quantum repetition, events repeating, there's no new thing under the sun, the Exodus is really one of the most clear foreshadows of the book of Revelation. And you look at the Egyptian society, how this is a society that was, deep in the occult, in the worship of the devil and fallen angels. You know, you have, uh, first of all, you have the Pharaoh who is perceived and thinks of himself as a god, right? That's, that's the Pharaohs were thought of themselves as god-men, which is exactly what the Antichrist is going to present himself as. The Pharaohs wore a, a crown that had a serpent coming out of their forehead. I mean, that is the, they're screaming that they are with the devil. And so, um, and even when you look at how God described the Exodus ju- judgments, there's a very interesting passage where God says that he's going to judge Egypt and their gods. So this wasn't just a judgment. Look at the plagues of the Exodus. It wasn't just a judgment against the people of Egypt. It was also against their gods. And who are they? The fallen angels, the demons. And God was also, it was also a battle against spiritual beings as well. And which, of course, we're going to see again in the end times. I mean, so when you get to, you know, the, the Jonathan Jambra, the, the sorcerers there, you know, they, are, again, are representing, I believe, uh, you know, kind of they're, they're almost like a foreshadow of the false prophet. The false prophet performs miracles to deceive the world to worship the Antichrist. The sorcerers of Pharaoh, those two Jonathan Jambras, when Moses, you know, was able to turn his rod into a snake, they did the same thing. Mm-hmm. Of course, Moses' serpent ate their serpent, but they performed the same miracle, and that kept Pharaoh from repenting. When Moses turned the water to blood, they did the same thing. They go the first three or four miracles, they're able to match Moses and Aaron, basically supernatural feet for supernatural feet. And I think, again, what we're seeing is a foreshadow, because what we need to understand is that when we see the description of the Antichrist and the false prophet in, in Revelation, they, are, they have literal supernatural power. They're not performing parlor tricks. It's not a sleight of hand. They're going to be performing miracles. The book of Thessalonians says all lying signs and wonders. And, you know, Jesus said that, that if it were possible to deceive the very elect, if it were possible. So this is going to be the greatest display of supernatural power from the forces of evil ever. It's the greatest deception. So I think we're seeing a lot of the foreshadows there. And even when you look at the plagues of Exodus, you know, you have a judgment of, again, we mentioned water turning to blood. You have that in Revelation. There's a judgment Uh of a plague of frogs. You know, you see in Revelation chapter 16, right before the, 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 really before the preparation for the battle of Armageddon, you have demon spirits, that look like frogs coming out of the mouth of the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the devil that go out to recruit the armies of the world to battle Jesus Christ. There's a plague of darkness uh, upon the earth, uh, upon, sorry, upon Pharaoh's kingdom. There's a plague of darkness in Revelation on the seed of the Antichrist. So we see a lot, and even going to the final judgment, right, the, what, was, what brought Pharaoh to his knees? It was the death of the firstborn, of course, the first Passover, where all the firstborn children and animals 
were killed um, on the night of the first Passover. And ultimately, what will bring all this to an end in Revelation will be the death, I believe, of the Antichrist, right? At Armageddon, when Jesus Christ kills the Antichrist, that is what brings all of the Satan's kingdom to an end. And, uh, and, of course, I believe that the Antichrist will actually be the literal seed, the firstborn of the devil. So his, when his seed is killed, it, will come, it all comes to an end as well. Okay. And... Um... I didn't uh, realize until I read your book that um, the location of Armageddon is not one of the plains. Uh, you know, I always heard that, but uh, you, you say it's uh, going to happen at an, another location. Correct. So, yeah, so what I explained is that Armageddon, as we think of it, isn't really just a single battle. It's really a series of battles that uh, stretch from, you know, Megiddo, you know, uh-huh. in, the, in the northwestern part of Israel to, to Edom. And so I really chronicle how it's really Jesus leading the remnant the believing remnant of Israel that's in Eden, that's where they're going to be preserved and protected. We see a reference to this in Revelation chapter 12, where it says that you see the woman uh, with the, the sun and moon at her head, the 12 stars surrounding her, which I believe is a, a picture of Israel. It says that she's nurtured in the wilderness for three and a half years. And I believe that wilderness is the wilderness of Edom. Exactly the same wilderness. This is all, again, a repetition of the Exodus where Israel was in the wilderness, and they're going to be led by Jesus back towards Jerusalem. And that is where the final battle takes place, and truly at the Mount of Olives. That's where we see the final battle between Christ and Antichrist take place. And then at the Mount of Olives, you have the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And when you go to the book of Job, I'm sorry, the book of Joel, in chapters 2 and 3, it's abundantly clear. God says that this is where the final battle will take place, in the Valley of Decision, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which, is, of course, is right at the base of the Mount of Olives. And what we see described, when you put the prophecy together between Joel and Zechariah, it's this amazing, again, amazing picture. You have the Antichrist forces gathering in the, in the Valley of Jehoshaphat, and says when Jesus will then set his feet on the Mount of Olives, that the Mount of Olives, the mountain itself, will separate. It will split northward and southward, providing a valley for the Israelites being pursued by the Antichrist to escape through. And this is, again, a a phenomenal picture of the Exodus and the parting of the Red Sea. Once Uh, again, that will supernaturally separate a, a, a body, this time a mountain, to allow the Israelites to escape, and then he destroys the Antichrist, just as, of course, at the Red Sea, the Israelites passed through on dry land, and then God destroyed Pharaoh and his armies. That makes sense. Reporting of Red Sea. Okay. So, uh, um, you know, what, what you have in one book, you, you have... Usually have something very similar to it in the New Testament. 
it's just uh, all the prophecies are coming true. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and this is why I say that, you know, from the first chapter of the final Nephilim, I say, you know, we have to think about time from God's perspective because God is outside of time. So time for God is not linear. It's more like a scroll. And I call it the scroll of time in scripture where events are repeating and the beginning of a scroll is lined up at the end. The beginning is the end, the end is the beginning. And, and so, so therefore, and God tells us in scripture that events are repeating. He uses the term similitudes in Hosea. He talks about, again, we talked about Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun, that God is repeating things. And so ultimately we see a, a, an amazing uh, repetition of the Exodus in the judgments of Revelation all the way up to Armageddon. Okay, and uh, probably a couple years ago, uh, we had a guest, uh, Dr. Andrew Silverman, who uh, had re- has uh, researched the uh, Shroud of Turin, um, and he's uh, applying quantum physics to trying to get us to understand that, you know, there's just a a high probability that this Shroud of Turin um, actual burial shroud that's mentioned in I think the book of Luke. Uh, anyhow, um, Andrew uh, was discussing quantum physics as to preface his research, and yeah, you, know, you uh, bring up you know, page eleven in. The final Nephilim, um, the writers of the Old Testament were basically aware of the same topic. They were probably using different words, but um, the the same idea is there. Uh, You're writing uh, quantum physics, which observes the subatomic level of our world is often used in an effort to explain the origin of time, space, and the universe itself. Uh, Go on to uh, work in the spiritual realm. So, uh, advanced science is actually being incorporated into both books of the Bible. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what I like to say is that uh, advanced science is, is just catching up to the Bible. And how I explain it is that mm-hmm. when you look at, you know, the area of quantum physics, I just found it really fascinating that, you know, they're, they're quantum physicists, and, of course, quantum physics, again, the study of subatomic particles, go back to school, the proton, the neutron, the electron, mm-hmm building blocks of our universe is what they have now 
focusing on is this idea of uh, quantum superposition and this notion that electrons and subatomic particles don't behave how a scientist would expect them to. In fact, that an electron can exist in two different states at the same time. A single electron can be spinning up and spinning down at the same time, and they call that superposition. And what I, what I focus on is that really this is how God expresses himself through Scripture, right, since millennia ago, right, in the Bible. You know, you think about how Jesus Christ says that he is beginning and ending, Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning of time and the ending of time at the same time. He said that when Jesus was on earth at his first advent, he said, I and my Father are one. God the Father is sitting in heaven on his throne, and yet Jesus on earth said, we are one. How could that be? Well, because he exists in superposition. The Trinity, he says, there are three that bear witness in heaven, the, 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 the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. They're three distinct beings, yet one at the same time. Even the nature of Jesus, that he is fully God and fully man simultaneously. All this, again, is how I believe God has been explaining superposition in the pages of the Bible since we first had it. And so now science is just catching up. And why does that matter? I think for two reasons. One, it's showing, I always take note that when the world, when, when science or things in the world are converging with the Bible, I think it's another sign that we're getting closer to the end times. And two, it just shows that um, uh, the, just the amazing aspects of Scripture that the Bible that reveals so much about not just ourselves, about our sinfulness, our nature, about our redemption, but also about the actual nature of the universe itself. And so that's really why I started off my, my second book with that, because I wanted to show, one, this concept, but you know, also that when we apply it to prophecy, and that's what the Old Testament prophets did. They said they understood that, that you know, just like as the world of physics thinks of things being cyclical and being connected, there's also a concept of quantum entanglement, that, a, that particles can be connected through time, and that what happens in one time, uh, space of time affects the other particle through time. I believe that's how prophecy is connected. And that's when you go back to Ecclesiastes. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. See this, that this, see this is new. It has been already of old time, which was before us. The prophets understood that God is repeating things. He is repeating events, and they're all connected until their ultimate culmination, of course, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think that's operational uh, message as we get closer to uh, Christmas, but uh, you know, it, it, and I think a, a, a lot of those um, Roman writers were a very interesting uh, like St. Augustine, but um, you've you, you, uh, frequently mention um, Hippolytus. Um, what was his importance to um, the early development of church? 
Sure. Well, Hippolytus, uh, he wrote basically in circa 202 AD. And he really, he has, you know, his, his treatise uh, called On Christ and Antichrist is the oldest writing on Revelation that is, that's still extant, that we still have today. And he, you know, you go back to, you know, some of the most renowned church historians, Eusebius, Jerome, they quote him frequently. So he was definitely someone who was seen as a, as a you know, a, a well-respected theologian on Bible prophecy. So, you know, in doing my research, when God led me to his writings, I was just blown away because he hit, I believe, some of his interpretations on the career of Antichrist. I'm re- it's really mind-blowing that he was able to come to these conclusions at such an early time. But then again, he's close to the writing of Revelation. He's just a century after it was written. But he really, I think, made some very startlingly accurate, I think, predictions and interpretations of Revelation and how it describes the Antichrist. He talks, he talks about the Antichrist being a hero to Israel, being a conqueror and defender of the Israelites in order to deceive them, in order to deceive them. He even discusses the fact that he predicts in very clear language so that there will be another temple. You know, he wrote in 202 AD. He was, again, just a, several generations removed from the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Romans uh-huh. and Titus Vespasian. Yet he wrote there's going to be another temple, and that when it's built, the Antichrist will give it to Israel. So again, this idea of the Antichrist being this deceiver, you know, we talk about uh, in Thessalonians that he will go into the temple of God, ultimately showing himself that he is God. He, I think, again, was very accurate in, in, in understanding what the scriptures are saying, that there is going to be another temple. And the Antichrist, why would he give it to Israel? To deceive them. And then one of the most fascinating um, parts of his writings is when he describes kind of how the Antichrist will supernaturally present himself. And I was really um, kind of struck by it because he describes the Antichrist, you know, levitating in the air, bathed in beautiful light with, you know, hundreds of angels around him singing in beautiful voices. And that really struck me because, you know, I, I, I think that when you talk about the deception of the Antichrist, that that's really how I believe the deception will play out, that it's not going to be the Antichrist, you know, kind of threatening people with his power and saying, you know, worship me or you're, you're dead, you know, or things like that. That initially, before he betrays Israel, he's going to present himself, I believe, as a benevolent being, as, as their Messiah. And he's going to appear, what if he does appear, bathed in light and beautiful and levitating and friendly? You know, so you think of things that that's how the deception should work. I even talk about how that could even be, they might even say, he and the fallen angels may even say they're from another planet. You know, you talk about the, the UFO phenomenon, how that could manifest in the end time. Uh-huh. They could present themselves and say, hey, we're from another planet. We, we seeded you on Earth 7,000 years ago, and now we're back to help you evolve into your next stage of, you know, human evolution and give you the powers that we have, you know, all those things. And so, Hippolytus, I think, was really on the ball in a lot of his interpretations of Bible prophecy. Okay, and you know, of course, he he he's um, 
just uh, seven generations removed from like Nero and Caligula, you know, is yeah, uh, and yeah, you do have um, a little section on uh, the Emperor Domitian um, as being one of the six mystery uh, kings, uh, you know, so. While we're on the topic of ancient Rome, and uh, you know, you can still see the Arch of Titus there in the Roman Forum that commemorates uh, the AD seventy uh, defeated the Israeli army. Um, you know, a lot of this stuff is. Can still be uh, visited or seen, um, but who were some of these early, uh, or, or what role did some of these early uh, emperors, uh, Roman emperors, play in? Uh, it, uh, Hippolytus's writings, or you, know, you get other people commenting on Nero was the six six six, the number of a man. Yes, yeah, certainly. Yes, yeah. some, some, some. Yeah, some of the early uh, church fathers and theologians believe that Nero was the Antichrist. Um, I, when you look at uh, Hippolytus, he didn't come to that conclusion. But what you see in the Roman emperors, I think, is they were living, the church at that time was, you know, living under such uh, persecution, you know, whether it's uh, Nero, you know, who's sacrificing Christians in, in, in the Colosseum or uh, Caligula, you know, uh, also persecuted Christians. Their Christians were being, you know, used for lighting gardens, you know, setting them on fire to light their gardens, you know. So they they saw truly previews of the reign of Antichrist. So it really makes sense as to why they might think that they were actually living in the reign of Antichrist. But when you see, uh, I think, in, in Domitian, it, you know, first of all, he was the emperor who banished John, the apostle, to Patmos, where he wrote Revelation. So he played a very key role in biblical events. You know, and, and of course, this is in Scripture, but in the historical account of the church was that he first tried to kill John, and he failed at doing that because he tried to, to uh, dip him in hot oil to execute him and torture him, that he wasn't harmed, that he then banished him to Patmos, where he wrote and received the revelation from Jesus. And so what also you see there, you mentioned also, of course, the Arch of Titus. Well, Titus Vespasian was the brother of Domitian, and, you know, it's, and that is the most replicated uh, you know, uh, statue, or rather monument, in the world. And it's celebrating, as you said, the destruction of the temple. It has, the, it has you know, the, the, the etchings of the Roman soldiers carrying out the, 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 the golden candlestick, the menorah, out of the temple. So it's really, you know, elevating Satan's kingdom. Uh, and, and then also, something else I point out about 
Domitian was that he, uh, like many Roman emperors before him, proclaimed himself to be a god and always had to be, in fact, in any formal letter or address had to be addressed as God himself. And so, uh, and there's an interesting um, history with respect to Jesus that Domitian actually uh, hunted down the relatives of Jude, of course, who of course was the half-brother um, of Jesus. And, you know, I quote uh, a church historian writing in the second century who said that he actually gathered up the, the relatives, the descendants of Jude to have them killed because he was still worried about the, the messianic bloodline and anyone having a relation to Jesus even being alive. And so, so very similar to what we see in the Bible, this, this obsession with, again, you look at Pharaoh, kill all the male Israelite babies, throw them in the river. Uh, of course, the Antichrist himself, you know, all this idea of attacking the Messianic bloodline, Domitian did the exact same thing. And so, again, I think he um, truly fits into the prophecy of Revelation 17, being when he talks about those seven kings and the angel says one is to John the Apostle, meaning one of these seven kings who will be indwelled by this fallen angelic spirit is alive right now in 96 AD. I believe it was Emperor Domitian. Okay, it, yeah, there in there it is in Revelation seventeen ten that there were seven kings, five are fallen, and one is uh, still you know, uh, with us, you know, presently. Right. So that uh, that's yeah, that's so that's where you're getting the. Uh, AD ninety six. Exactly. Is, okay. And uh, that might it was about uh, about the uh, latest date that uh, uh, John would have been sent to Patmos. Okay. Exactly. And when you look at church fathers of that time, like Irenaeus and others, they they directly say that it was Domitian uh, who banished and exiled John on Patmos. So again, that that puts us in that time frame. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. That makes sense. Okay. And, and I, you know, I, I, th- I think you know. You, you just cover so much fascinating information. You know, it's biblical prophecy, you know, tied in with you know, uh, history, Roman history, you know, Greek, Middle Eastern history. Uh, you know, your book has a little bit of everything in it. Sci-fi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, because you know, when you think about it. Whether, you know, for example, you know, we, we can look at the ancient Greek mythology. You know, I, I was, this is a perfect example. Uh, there's a show on Netflix uh, called uh, Ancient Apocalypse. So, of course, you know, I'm, I, I, I turn on the TV and I see a reference to a show called Ancient Apocalypse. I, that's an immediate watch for me. And I'd never heard of the show. I knew nothing about it. 
but I'm watching with my daughter, and it's 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 a it's a documentary series where they go to different sites of ancient ruins of megaliths, megalithic structures, whether it's in Chichen Itza, the pyramids in Egypt, and they basically they keep what they show is with every different country they go to, they go to, to Malta, and they're all over the world. And, of course, we know about these megalithic structures, but what they keep saying is in the cultural history of the society that built the pyramid, the structure, the, the story of how these buildings came about is the same, that they were beings who came and gave knowledge to the people, who supernatural beings gave knowledge to these people, and that's how they were able to build these structures that not only are defy physics and technology for what was available at that time, they're aligned with the sun, they're aligned with stars, and all those things that we know about these different megalithic structures from ancient times. And immediately, as we're watching the second or third episode, and we see the exact same story being told as to how they got this technology, my daughter, who's 10, says, why don't they just read the Bible and read about Noah and the Nephilim, right? <laughs> so it's all going to, so I've mentioned all this because it's all going back, it all comes back to what the Bible tells us as the source of truth. They might, you know, the fallen angels and their kingdom may put a spin on it to deceive. They may call them demigods. They may call them Hercules or Achilles, but it's just the Nephilim giants. And just like in modern times, they may call them Greys or Venusians or, um, the Anunnaki or some type of alien beings, but it's just, again, the fallen angels in a deception presenting themselves as beings from another planet or things like that. So it's all coming back to the true story of the Bible. Okay. And, and, and yeah, yeah, you were just talking about the uh, Netflix show on uh, – uh, what was the name of it again? The uh, Ancient Apocalypse. Ancient Apocalypse. Uh yeah, you do have uh, Petra mentioned. Uh, you got to work in Petra from you know, the of uh, 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 Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, right. uh, trilogy. Uh, it's a, there is a lot of uh, Sean Connery is you know, has his little notebook of you know, the leap of faith with the night in it. You know, there's a lot of uh, uh, biblical in- information uh, presented in that movie. So how does Petra fit into uh, all-, all these biblical prophecies? Yeah, sure. So, so Petra... Uh... Of course, the ancient stone city uh, built by the Nabataeans in what in ancient times was Edom. Uh, you know, there's an interesting thing about Edom, you know, that we see in the book of Daniel. When, it, when Daniel chapter 11, uh, the end of that chapter chronicles uh, the military campaigns of the Antichrist. Because remember, the Antichrist in his first half of his career, his seven-year career, is again, he's going to represent himself, present himself as the defender of Israel. So he's going to be fighting Middle Eastern wars on behalf of Israel. But there's an interesting thing there. The Bible specifically lists three nations that will not be conquered by the Antichrist, and Edom is one of them. 
So why does that matter? Because I believe, again, it's to the wilderness of Edom that in the second half of his career, when he betrays Israel and becomes the full-fledged Revelation 13 Antichrist, the mark of the beast, the image of the beast, he proclaims himself God, he's no longer pretending, um, they will flee to Edom. And that's, of course, where we find this, this Petra, this, this stone fortress. And so what I surmise, and again, I'm not dogmatic on this, but I do think it's, that there's a possibility that that is actually mm-hmm. where the Israelites will be, that believing remnant will be staying in Edom at Petra. And what I point to is in the Psalms, there's, um, it's in Psalm 60 where God is saying, referencing, I believe this is the end time prophecy, it says, who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me into Edom? Will not thou, O God, which had cast us off, and thou, O God, which did not go out with our armies, give us help from trouble, for vain is the help of man. Through God we shall do valiantly, for it, he it is that shall tread down our enemies. And so it's Israel crying out to God, saying, hey, we've been cast off, because they're on the run. They're, they're running from the Antichrist. You see the Revelation 12 vision where the, the, the dragon lets a, a flood out of his mouth to try and get the woman, but she flees to the, to the wilderness to be comforted. Mm-hmm. So this is, again, okay. where the believing remnant is going to flee to Edom, and God is going to protect them there. And I believe that strong city could be Petra. Okay, and... I think what you just explained and what you have in your book actually actually makes sense for the uh, uh, final installment of the Raiders of the Lost Ark series is uh, uh, it is a strong strong city, but it it's a, a place that is not conquered. You know, it kind of fits in with the you know. Sean Connery and uh, Indiana Jones's characters. Uh, it, it just it, it just goes it all goes well together for the, that movie. Oh sure, yeah. You know, and, yeah. and Hollywood always, you know, they're always kind of throwing things out there too that kind of intersect with Bible prophecy as well. So, <laughs> well, like, yeah. Uh, it's, so, so you just mentioned Daniel's uh, uh, dream. I it, it, always, uh, and I think uh, I don't, have to, uh, don't have my Bible open up to that page right at, at the moment. But I, I think in the introduction to Daniel, it, it, it was more of an inspirational. Uh, book not necessarily based on history um but the statue that is depicted in the book of Daniel seems to be one of those um um iconic I- images from the Old Testament, and you, know, uh, you reference it several times. And, and there's all the. You know, I used to have this uh, uh, pamphlet on analyzing the different uh, layers of uh, 
what the statue was made of, the uh, different metals and clay. Um, it's an important uh, that's dream interpretation does play a, a role in your book as well as you know, a lot of people really enjoy that uh, trying to analyze that scene uh, you might get some images of that from uh, the Twilight Zone as well. Um, uh, false images and uh, oh, uh, can't think of the name of that episode. I can't can't believe I just uh, just drew a blank on that episode. It's like uh, there's all the little uh, people that uh, one of the astronauts tells them to. Um, Built a statue of him. It was like ego was going uh, crazy, and you know, he 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 had uh, felt like he had become a god to these small people, and they eventually pulled it down. Um, put it down at the end of the episode. I forget. I forget the title. Of that I'll I'll remember as soon as the, the show ends. But it, it, it's. That idea uh, is repeated in other artworks. What um, what's the importance of the statue from Daniel? Yeah, sure. So the statue, I think, is telling you know kind of a, the history of you know uh, in, in the future at that time of kind of the interaction between God and the, the, the Gentile kingdoms of the world, right? You know, you have the, the, the head of gold, uh, the torso of silver, midsection of brass, legs of iron, and feet of iron and miry clay. And, of course, Nebuchadnezzar, who has the dream, is told by Daniel, you are the, the head. You are that head of gold. That you're the first kingdom. And it's giving this chronology of the, the mighty kingdoms of the ancient world in, in chronological order. But then, so I think there's one, it, it's demonstrating, one, obviously the power and accuracy of Bible prophecy, but two, to your point about the Twilight Zone episode, this idea, the notion of power, earthly power leading, corrupting one to believe that they are a god. And, and you see this over and over with all these kingdoms, whether it was uh, Nebuchadnezzar himself, who in the very next chapter makes a statue of himself to be worshipped as a god, whether it's Alexander the Great, who, was, who uh, some thought was a descendant of gods, or uh, uh, you know, you get the Ozymandias for Exactly, exactly. And the Persian Empire, Azarerus, he thought he, he thought he was a god. The Roman Empire, thought the emperors thought they were gods. So again, it's that idea the Bible is telling us that this is the consistent um, ultimate end, right, of of humanity outside of God's ways. And that shouldn't be a surprise because where does that take us back to? The Garden of Eden, Satan's original offer to Eve. Disobey God and you shall be as God. This is what the devil has been offering since the first two people on earth. In every kingdom, every human effort outside of God 
will ultimately lead to that same desire to be God, to supplant God, because that's the devil's agenda from day one. He plants that idea of in the in the hearts and minds of his children, his followers, and so. So yeah, so it kind of it, it kind of represents that notion of of you know the the evil of humanity when we're in power without God, but then also it takes us to an amazing prophecy in Daniel chapter two verse forty three when we look at those defeats, the final kingdom that will be destroyed by Jesus Christ is destroyed by the stone the, the, that that represents Christ in the vision in the dream, and of course we're told that those feet that are of iron and miry clay merged together. It says, where thou hast seen the iron and miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. And so now this is taking us to the end times, and that end times final kingdom is going to be a hybrid kingdom. And, of course, when you see that language of they shall mingle themselves with the seed, we're talking genetics. And so who is the they? I believe it's the fallen angelic kingdom, and this is what the Antichrist kingdom is. It's the hybrid kingdom. The kingdom of the final Nephilim is a hybrid kingdom of angels and humans mingled together, trying again to mingle the seed as it was in the days of Noah. So really, that statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2 is taking us not just through ancient history, but all the way to the, the consummation and start of Christ's kingdom after he conquers Antichrist. You know, you know. Th- thanks for letting me get that uh, uh, reference to Ozymandias. That you know, it's like ten years of college are paying yeah. off. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. But and you were just uh, talking about the you know, statue uh, of the beast. Um, oh, I got try to find that real fast but um and anyhow you uh in revelation uh or, or while you were talking about uh, like chapter 12 13 or so of revelation um you're you mentioned something like uh The uh, d- devil uh, breathes life into the a- Antichrist, uh, or h- however that works. It it just seems like th- th- there's like that uh, concept of life going uh, being transferred to an inanimate object yeah, it's a little bit of a mockery of uh, uh, Eve being uh, born and you know, made from Adam's rib um, and you had something in there in your writing about um, oh, uh, can't find the path passage now but it, it, there's uh like a uh supernatural transference of power um uh almost like uh, passing forward like a reincarnation it, it, it's like the same character uh keeps reappearing 
And, and you know, we kind of touched on that at the beginning of the show, but uh, you, you just mentioned it again, and I thought that was one of the really interesting uh, aspects of your book is how often um, could look at the Bible as a collection of a uh, whole bunch of supernatural books. Uh, it, it's explaining things that we kind of maybe just uh, are seeing in today's movies, but the idea has been around for a very long time. Yeah, absolutely right. The, the whole notion of the dying and rising God, you know, and mm-hmm. things like that. And you see, you know, beings in, in, in movies or pop culture who die and come back or take on assume new bodies and things of that nature. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we see this, and, that, you know, and it's no surprise because, again, this is, this is knowledge from ancient times. And, you know, the, the, uh, the spiritual realm shares information. You know, so so when we see things, you know, in in TV, you know, the the one thing about the final Nephilim uh, that that I'll plug is that it's probably the first Bible prophecy book that actually has uh, video commentary in it, right? There are QR codes that you can scan your phone, the tablet, and you get Uh free bonus video commentary um, that I shot in the studio in different chapters of the book. But there's one section, there's one video commentary that, is actually not a part of the written book. Talk about the many books and movies and TV shows that talk about the Nephilim and the fallen angels, but they twist the biblical accounts. You know, they say, oh, the Nephilim are heroes. They're they're, uh, valiant warriors defending humanity. There are even stories, books, and movies, and mostly they're targeted at young adults, at teens, at preteens. That's really the target audience. And there's even a series called The Fallen about a 16-year-old boy who, when he, at his 16th birthday, starts developing supernatural ability. He can, he can read people's minds. He gets super strength. All these things are happening to him. And then he encounters an angel who tells him that he's a Nephilim, and that's why he now has these powers and that he – of uh, and not only is he a Nephilim, he's called in in the series. He's called the Redeemer. That he is the prophesied Redeemer of humanity to save the world, human race, and and that he can redeem fallen angels. And so it goes to this whole thing. Of course, his, his challenges and he fights demons and does all these heroic things. But in the culmination, in the actual final scene of the series, this was a book series and a TV series on the ABC Family Channel he learns that his father is actually Satan. So the hero of the entire series is the Antichrist, the seed of the, of the serpent, and he's a Nephilim. So again, so we see that w- what inspired that. Do you think those writers are familiar with the Bible? Absolutely. They didn't uh-huh. just r- randomly make this up. They know what they're doing, and they have an agenda. And it's what, what spirit is inspiring this, right, the spirit of Antichrist is going to sow these ideas in the world to lead to, it's, it's, it's no different than what Jesus Christ commanded us to do. Go out into the world, 
teaching all the all the things I've commanded, right? We're supposed to go and spread his word, plant his seeds. The devil is doing the same thing to plant seeds of deception, seeds of rebellion, to prepare. Everything is about a preparation. The church is preparing the world for Christ. Satan's army is preparing the world for Antichrist. And we're seeing it all, it's all racing to a culmination right now. Okay, and speaking of... Uh shows like uh the the fallen or you know all all these uh ghost hunting type shows um it, you, know, you, you you do mention in your book that um The uh, encountering their conqueror again in the New Testament, the demons pleaded for mercy and noticed their request. They begged Jesus not to send them to the deep. Uh, it, they, the, um, you know, the bad guys in, you know, such a movie that you just discussed or these TV shows uh, um, you don't you really don't I at least I haven't seen much about um, invoking Jesus's name to ha- have this uh, kind of uh, uh, ha- hauntings stop, but it it's act. Uh, you're arguing that it's a- actually in scriptures that they uh, would recognize his name and they would uh, move on or you know uh, vacate the house. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, you know, I, again, I, I, you know, I believe the demons are the spirits of the, the dead Nephilim giants. And what I point out in Judgment of the Nephilim is that time and time again, it was Jesus appearing, the pre-incarnate Christ who waged war against the giants in the land of Canaan, uh, before east of the Jordan against King Og and King Sihon, the two Nephilim kings who Moses conquered with the Israelites, that God waged war against them personally. So when we get to the New Testament and Jesus is now on earth and encounters demons, they know exactly who he is, and they, they are scared. They are utterly frightened of him, and they say immediately, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. They know it. They identify him, and they don't want any part of him. And then we get to the book of Acts. You know, there's an interesting account where you have uh, uh, this this uh, Jewish man named Skiva and his sons try to cast out demons. And the demon-possessed man, the demon speaking through the man, says, Jesus I know, and then says, Paul I know, but basically who are you? So, not, so, so, yeah, so there's a power to the name of Jesus when it comes to casting out demons. And even the apostle's name, the demon said, I, hey, I even know the apostle, but I don't know who your name. And so I, I think that when we think about, you know, demonic encounters, ghost encounters now, today in the world we're living in, oftentimes you'll see the success of escaping that type of encounter is 
proclaiming the name of Jesus uh, because, again, it invokes that fear in the demonic realm. Okay. Uh, that's um, maybe something that, that should be emphasized a little bit more if those types of shows are going to um, flood the markets. Um, I don't see it mentioned much, but it, you know, I think you do make a good point and a way – uh, for people to you know, realize there there is help for such a situation. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. But okay. Um, um, since you know, you know with about. 18 minutes or so. Um, I still want to focus on some uh, good, good aspects of uh book that it ties in with the uh, Christmas season. But um, what, what about the um, – since we've spoken about numbers, uh, what about that 144,000? Is that really being uh, all the people who are going to be saved? Try to find oh, them. no, 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 no. Try, I think, yeah, oh, okay. Revelation 7, yeah, no, I don't see it that way at all. No, I think the 144,000 are exactly what Revelation chapter 7 says they are, that they are designated witnesses who God has set apart to go into the world and share his gospel, that gospel of the kingdom, right? What did, what did John the Baptist preach? That the kingdom of God is at hand, and certainly the great tribulation, it's at hand. Jesus is coming quickly. And so I think that's who they are. I don't see them as uh, the sum total of people who are saved in the great tribulation or, or anything of that sort. I think that they are... You know, sharing, again, you talk about the Christmas message, the, the, the glad tiding of good news that the Messiah is coming, that he's real, to repent and believe upon him and be saved, and that he's coming back. And so um, I think they, of course, are, you know, we're told that obviously they're, they're, they are Israelites. They are if of the, from the tribes of Israel, um, and they have a great message. And I think it's amazing, too, when we talk about the, the Christmas message is that at no time banned in the world, he's, the Lord is constantly leaving a witness. He sends 144,000 witnesses into the earth to, to, to uh, share his word, to encourage people to, to be, to be saved. He has his two witnesses who, who preach for three and a half years, who can perform miracles, who can't be killed or harmed until the midpoint of the tribulation. He sends angels, we see in Revelation 14, traveling all over the earth, angels manifesting, godly angels who are manifest all over, flying all over the earth, telling people, do not take the mark of the beast, do not take it, there's no turning back. And so I think when we see the 144,000, it's just another example of God's love, even for the unsaved world, for those who are against him, who are rebelling against him, who are blaspheming his name, 
who are saying he doesn't exist, who are denying him or committing wickedness, who are practicing the occult. God loves all of them. God wants them saved. God wants those today who are practicing the occult saved. He wants them back in this family. He wants those who hate him back. He loves them anyway and is sending his message, his gospel to say it can all be forgiven. We can have peace. We can have reconciliation. I love that you know, in Isaiah chapter 1, God, through the prophet, I mean, he is ripping the Israelites to shreds. He's saying how they've sinned. They've, they've gone against him. They've been reckless. They've been rebellious. They're not like his children anymore. They've been horrible. They've been, and what are they doing? They've been worshiping other gods, committing idolatry for centuries. Kings were committing idolatry. And then you get to right to the middle of the passage, and what does God say to them? Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, I can make them white as snow. So even in the midst of, their, of how disappointed and utterly disgusted God is with their behavior, he still loves them. He still loves the person and says, let us reason. Let's talk it out. Let's sit down and work through it. And so I think when we see the witnesses that God sends, even the height of the great tribulation, it's God saying, let us reason. You're in the midst of a sinful society. You're in the midst of temptation. You might be in the midst of rebellion, but come, let us reason together. I want to forgive you. I want to make you clean. I want to remove your sin and redeem you and bring you back to me. That's a really good message. Um, yeah, so, um, it, it, you also present... Um, or, or, or you, you recount. Uh, I guess, I guess it's uh, maybe it would be interpreted as a layout of um, heaven, where there's a sea uh, in front of. Uh, God's throne in Revelation 15. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so yeah, it, we see in Revelation 13. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say, uh, yeah, it's uh, um, one one of the nice things of, about <clears throat> what you, the way you write is, you know, your subject material really well. And yeah, you have those little details in there that uh, make you go back, and it's like, oh, I kind of forgot about you know. It's, uh, let me check uh, check to see see that description. I, I forgot about it, and, and you, know, you realize, oh, okay, there there it is. It's like you know, ocean in front of the uh, throne. So how? And then you get uh, some angels walking on the water as well. So, you know, it's a little, a little bit like the Jesus walking on water. Yeah, definitely. And so, yeah, so, so um, yes, yeah, so that crystal sea, sure. I mean, yeah, we see it in Revelation 15, and we see the, the, uh, the martyrs uh, from the Great Tribulation standing there. And, you know, this this thing with some of Moses, they have victory over the beast. And victory in the Great Tribulation is really being willing to die for your faith. And what is amazing also about that, Steve, is that I believe that when you think about the three 
uh, levels of heaven, the, you know, the first heaven, the sky, the heaven, the second heaven, the, the outer space, essentially, and then the third heaven, the spirit realm heaven, where God's throne is. Um, and, of course, the, the righteous angels and everything we see in heavenly visions in the Bible, uh, that, I believe that scene is separating the third heaven from the rest of the human realm. It's separating the spirit realm from the human realm. And, of course, from the heavenly's perspective, it's like it's, a, it's, like it's crystal floor, right? It's, it's a sea of crystal. And what is amazing, again, going back to this idea of God's ultimate plan of reconciliation is that after the millennium, after the millennial reign of Christ, when Satan is punished for good, when he's cast into the lake of fire for good, and even death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. So all evil is extinguished from earth and heaven. If we get to Revelation 21 and we see there's a new heaven and a new earth, obviously without sin, with no sin, and it says, and there was no more sea. So that, that purpose of that sea that's at the third heaven is no longer needed because now there's no longer a barrier between the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. And, of course, in that new earth, you have new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth because now it's open. You know, the habitation of God is with men. So, so that sea even in itself, will one day be removed when we are fully reconciled to our God. So, so um, the Genesis opens with um, you know, creation of The universe and you know, eventually gets to Earth. Uh, you know, the Book of Revelation ends with a n- new Earth coming down. So, uh, what? What is? What does this new the, the New Jerusalem coming down on? Uh, you know, I, I assume it's replacing the Earth uh, that we know today. Is is that like a, a new heaven? You know, how, how do we interpret that scene? Sure. Well, you know, you have the new heaven and Earth um, created in the beginning of Revelation 21, and of course, again, it says there's no sea. And what I what I compare it to is, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head, right? It, it's the it's the culmination of the scroll of time, right? Genesis one one. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Revelation twenty one one. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So they're recreated now. God has now recreated both. And then what do you have? Then the next verse, you have the holy city Jerusalem coming down of heaven. Well, what do we have in Genesis when God creates heaven and earth? He plants a garden. In Judgment of Nephilim, I say that the Garden of Eden was the first temple on earth because it's where God communed with man, which is always the purpose of a temple. And when you have the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, the next thing that's proclaimed, it says, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. So just as God planted a garden, the Garden of Eden was supernaturally created by God on earth. Now he brings down the ultimate fulfillment of the Garden of Eden, the new Jerusalem, the divine tabernacle 
to once again dwell with man. Yeah. Okay. So uh, could could that um is there anything uh like the uh, uh was it like the third temple in Jerusalem could it uh that that's supposed to be built is there like any possibility that the new Jerusalem is the culmination of the the building of the last sure well you know I think it's interesting that you know when you look at Daniel 9 the 70 weeks prophecy it's really talking about ultimately four temples right so you have Uh, uh, okay okay, the fourth I was one short Okay, th- thanks for correcting me. Yeah, so the, yeah, no, 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 it's not fine. So you have the third temple that, of course, will be built. That even Hippolytus knew was going to be built. And that will that will be uh, during the kingdom of Antichrist, right? And that will be that the, ultimately the Antichrist will desecrate and go and proclaim himself God, except the abomination of desolation. And I believe that uh, ultimately. At the after Armageddon, um, we'll see a, a restoration of of the, the, the of the millennial we'll have the millennial temple, which of course is described in the book of Ezekiel in the last eight chapters of Ezekiel. We see this description of the millennial temple, and there's you know there's an interesting prophecy uh, in Daniel uh, that we see in and actually Daniel chapter twelve. And I think it confirms that not only are we going to have the millennial temple, but we're even going to have a cleansing of the temple, right, where it says um, if Daniel is told that, you know, from the time the sacrifice is taken away to the abom- and the abomination that make it desolate, there shall be uh, 2,000, I'm sorry, 1,290 days. There's going to be this you know, basically the second half of the tribulation plus 30 days will be the time of the sacrifice being taken away when the Antichrist ends any traditional Jewish mosaic worship and makes himself God. But then afterwards it says, blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the 1,305 and 30 days, 1,335 days. So, so why does that matter? And I think, again, when we think about the scroll of time, the fulfilling of prophecy, that if you look at the amount of time between uh, Yom Kippur and Hanukkah, you have 75 days. And this time period, you know, again, from this 1,260 days to 1,335 days is 75 days. So I think what's going to happen is we're going to have Christ come back defeat the Antichrist, and there's going to be this period of cleansing of the earth, that what Jesus calls mm-hmm. the regeneration and the rededication of the Millennium Temple, right? And that's what Hanukkah was, the Feast of the Dedication, the dedication of the Temple. Of course, after the Maccabees were able to defeat Antiochus Epiphany's uh, armies and recapture the, the Temple for God. And so, so again, we see uh, a lot of the repetition and scroll of time, even in the temple itself. Cool. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, one of the other. Uh, was it the Book of Maccabees that sure. uh, ha- has that uh, 
uh, other uh, uh, Nephilim, uh, you know, early version of the Antichrist, and it's <laughs> uh, that was another one. Uh, you know, we just finally got to in the last few minutes yeah. of the show, but yeah. it's it just, but it, it's and you know, we we only have about three minutes left, and I, I want to give you time to. Uh, plug everything but uh you know ryan uh thank you for just the wonderful discussion and uh a a nice way to lead people into the uh, christmas season so uh how how do people get your books and uh, uh the spring conference you have coming up Sure. Yeah. So you can uh, find uh, my, my my books. I have uh, the, the the two books. I also have documentaries I produced on both books and study guides. Uh, you can find that at judgmentofthenephilim.com, all one word. Uh, they're also available on Amazon. Documentaries are also available in DVD or digital format and Vimeo on demand. Uh, my my for social media, almost all of it is saying is, is Judgment of the Nephilim. My Facebook is Judgment of the Nephilim. My YouTube channel is Judgment of the Nephilim. My Instagram is Judgment of the Nephilim. And my Twitter is J-O-T-N underscore book. So uh, I invite people to subscribe. You can find out what I'm up to, my events, my coming conferences, and speaking engagements. Reach out to me. You can send me questions for Thursday Night Theology as well, which is on my YouTube channel and all my Facebook. So uh, uh, thanks again so much, Mark. I appreciate this time. And, um, uh, you know, it's just a blessing to be able to sit here and get deep the word like this so i appreciate you uh uh sharing this time with me oh i I, i'm very appreciative of you being a a guest and i i'm sure the listeners uh you know really got a lot out of you going deep into you know these different topics that probably aren't covered that much in uh most uh on Sunday uh, mornings, but um, yeah, you do that and uh, explain it very well. And I think the audience would have had a, a great education uh, this evening. I, I, I'm just sitting here, you know, my head's still spinning with all your, all the uh, fascinating information you provided to. So well, thank you, and praise the Lord. And, you know, you mentioned yep. how these things are discussed commonly in church, but you know what, that's, that's uh, you know, just, again, a repetition, right? You think about who was looking for the Messiah in the Gospels. It wasn't the Jewish people in the synagogues every week. It was the Magi who weren't even coming out of Israel. Yep. They were coming from the far yep. east. But yep. they were so they were on the fringe, but they were into prophecy, and so we should be have that same spirit as we are into enter Christmas. We need to be looking for the second coming and sharing it, proclaiming to people like they went to Herod and said, "There's a Messiah here. We want to worship him, and we have to share that same message with the world." Okay, so, uh, we we should uh, wrap there. We only have a few more seconds. Uh, th- th- thank you, everyone. Thank you, Ryan. H- have uh, Merry Christmas, and uh, I'll, I'll see you uh, next year.